Actually, my daily reading this morning was from Exodus chapter 15, the passage where it talks at the very end about Elam, that place of an oasis. And um, it just caught me these words, then they came to Elam, so they camped there near the water. They camped there near the water. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we come to the water of your word, as we settle there, we will be refreshed, we will be revived and renewed by the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. Um, and originally when I was preparing for these meetings, um, my mind went to Isaiah 6, <laughs> which I think everybody's mind is, goes to when we talk about gathering to go. And then I got a little bit of wind that, that some of the folk in the evening might be going there. And then I wondered, what should I do? And I thought also of Acts 2, gathered to go. But Elam Pentecostal people know everything there is to know about Acts chapter 2, isn't that right? Um, but the middle talk I was going to give was on Jesus' preparation for ministry. And it was out of this passage of scripture, uh, John, uh, sorry, Matthew 3, to do with the baptism of our Lord. And then Matthew 4, the temptation. But because I was holding off on Isaiah 6, and I was waiting to do Acts chapter 2, I spent a lot of time in Matthew 3 and 4. And what happened was, I ended up with so much that I believed God was giving me that I thought, no, I think I'm meant to do this the whole three sessions. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 3 and 4 throughout these three mornings. And this morning we're going to be thinking of, particularly from chapter 3, in Jesus' preparation for ministry, how he came from obscurity to prominence. Tomorrow morning we're going to look at how we need to learn to minister from identity, not for identity, but learn to minister and serve from our identity, who we are, sons and daughters of God. And then Friday morning, God willing, we'll be looking at the school of suffering from uh, chapter 4, the temptation of our Lord. So we're going to look at Jesus' preparation for ministry, particularly the element of gathering. I'm not really going to be talking too much about going, okay? It, the, the gathering is what sits on me. The need for us to be ready before we go. And so this morning we want to look at from obscurity to prominence and we read uh, chapter 3 of Matthew verse 13 down to just verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's fascinating to me that we don't know much about the years preceding Jesus' public ministry. I'm speaking to you about his preparation 
for mission, and yet we don't really know that much at all. And of course, uh, we know from the nativity narratives of the conception of our Lord by the Holy Spirit and the womb of the Virgin Mary. We know about his birth. We know about the flight of the family to Egypt. There's some wonderful little verses that give us glimpses into his early life in Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. There's a little biographical detail about him as a boy of 12. You remember getting lost in Jerusalem. And later we find out about um, his siblings, his brothers and sisters. But one of the intriguing things about the Gospels is actually... Not what they tell us, but also what they don't tell us, what they're silent on. And I'm thinking now of these years of obscurity of our Lord as he grew as a boy and as a teenager and as a young adult up till his ministry around 30 years of age. 30 years of the life of Messiah largely unaccounted for. Just let that sink in for a moment or two. And I want you to pause at that thought because we're going to revisit it in a moment. So if that's the case, and there's very little detail on the preparation of Jesus and his upbringing, it must surely then also follow that anything that the Holy Spirit chooses to tell us is of extreme importance, especially when it applies to our Lord's preparation for ministry. Now, the Gospels, I'm sure you'll agree with me, are all about the mission of Messiah. And he's fulfilling what he actually read from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. um, Verse 1 and 2, prophesied by Isaiah for Messiah as his mission mandate. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's jubilee. This was what the, the Messiah came to do. This is what the Gospels are all about. But how was Jesus gathered to go into that mission? What do we know about the preparation for the greatest mission on earth? And this is something for us to learn, as he, of course, is our great example. This is why I read Matthew 3 and 4 with you, the baptism and the temptation of our Lord. Because this was critical preparation for Jesus' mission on earth. But before we spend these next three mornings considering the importance of what is revealed to us in these two chapters, let's go back to where I asked you to pause for a moment the 30 years of obscurity that we know little of. I want to suggest to you that we need to start with what the Bible doesn't reveal and then move on to what it does reveal. And it tells us that Jesus' preparation for ministry began in obscurity and then moved to prominence. So I want to talk for a few moments, first of all, about how Jesus' preparation was mostly forged in obscurity. Certainly in terms of time, that was a lot of years in comparison with three years, three and a half years of ministry. 30 years in secrecy. I know this is a hard one, but imagine being the Son of God, knowing your mission, but having to wait 30 years to start it. And of course, there's an element of mystery around the growth of the Lord Jesus Christ, We read that 
verse from Luke 2, 40, the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. Jesus grew and he became strong. We read in Luke 2, 52, and this is a mind boggler, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And really that speaks to the the whole mystery of the incarnation assignment. Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in flesh. How much, have you ever thought about how much Jesus knew at each point of his development and growth as a human being? Now we don't really want to think about that because we think we're doing a disservice to his deity in some way, but we're not at all. What was it like for him whenever his moments of self-knowledge came around to who he was and what he'd come into the world to do. And we often think of Gethsemane, and of course that was a very important moment in Jesus' submission to the will of God for his ministry. But I imagine that a great deal of his submission to the mission had to be learned in the silent years that we know nothing about. As I said, when we read the Gospels, apart from the Nativity, Christ largely bursts on the scene, the ready-made Messiah. However, if the Holy Spirit allows us this morning to peek through the veil, we will see that these concealed years were when his humility was perfected, in the darkness of anonymity and invisibility. Just let me take a moment to address you because I feel that I am speaking to folk here today and you find yourself in a place of obscurity at this point in your life. And you wonder why. You can say that you feel the call of God upon your life. Now, of course, every believer should have that. We're all meant to go into the world to preach the gospel. But you feel a a peculiar commission from God to do a particular thing. But nothing seems to be working. You're wanting to serve God. You're wanting those effectual doors to open. But nothing seems to work. And you feel undiscovered, unrecognized, unknown, unappreciated, undervalued. We've all been there, I think. We're honest. And what I want to bring to you today is, I believe one sure ingredient that was gathered into the very fibers of Christ's humanity before he began his ministry was humility. And if we are to ever do what Jesus did, and you understand what I I mean when I say that, as he said, you will do greater things if you believe in me. If we're to move into that expression of the kingdom of God on the earth today in power, we're going to need his humility. And such humility was bred in obscurity. If there was anybody who could have protested, do you know who I am? It's Jesus Christ. But we could never envisage him saying such a thing because of his humility. Now, of course, let me emphasize clearly in case you're under any misunderstanding. I don't believe that our Lord had sinned in any way. Our Lord hadn't any sin within him to wrestle with And when I speak of submission and humility, it's not in relation to sin. I'm talking about the surrender of his human will to the Father's will. 
But here's the problem for us. We do have sin, of course. And one of our greatest sins is what I would call the mother sin, which is pride. C.S. Lewis describes pride as the sin that made the devil the devil. That's so true, isn't it? And I want to suggest to you that nothing will aggravate pride in you more than being undiscovered, unrecognized, overlooked. Now, I don't mean it's always wrong to want to be liked or loved or known or useful, but I am absolutely sure that the selfish ego must die in us if anything of God is to live in us, and we're to be any use for God in the long term. There's a story told about the valet to one of the German Kaisers who once said, I cannot deny that my master is vain. He had to be the central figure at everything. If he went to a christening, he wanted to be the baby. If he went to a wedding, he wanted to be the bride. If he went to a funeral, he wanted to be the corpse. He had to be the center of attention, that, that selfish ego, and we've all got it. I've got it. We've all got that Pharisee within, that Lucifer within, that devil within that wants to rise up and exalt itself to to the knowledge of God and be the center of the tension and in the limelight. Someone once said, true greatness is to serve unseen and to work unnoticed. That's true greatness in the kingdom of God. F.B. Marr once said of D.L. Moody, who was mightily used across the globe in evangelism, Uh, over 100 years ago. Moody is a man who never seems to have heard of himself. No wonder God used him so wonderfully. True greatness is to serve unseen and to work unnoticed. And I believe it was in those, those years of obscurity and solitude that even Jesus' prayer life was informed in the hiddenness I mean, where else did he learn what he taught in Matthew 6, 6? But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you've shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Through 30 years of secrecy, he learned that. And listen, if we are preparing to go into all the world to preach the gospel and turn it upside down for Jesus... We need to learn how to handle this vital element of preparation. And that is what it is to be overlooked. What it is to be unknown. What it is to be undiscovered. What it is to be unappreciated. And Jesus taught this, I believe, in a a roundabout way through some of his parables. He says in Luke 16, verse 10, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful in much. It's a principle of how we deal with the silence, the obscurity, the hiddenness. It's how God will deal with us. And in the parable of the talents, uh, Jesus depicts the master speaking to his faithful servants and saying in Matthew 25, 21, you are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It's vital that we know how to handle this. And the problem is none of us want to handle it. We don't want it. I have a dear friend who has a sign up in his kitchen which reads, enjoy the little things in life for one day you'll look back and realize they were the big things. That's profound. Enjoy the little things because one day you'll realize these were actually the big things. And in the kingdom of God, the little things are the big things. 
Someone once said that Jesus put his hand into the shopping window of humanity and he switched the price tags on our value system. In the economy of God's kingdom, it's the little things that are the big things. Just last week when I was on holiday, don't tell anybody, but I'm officially on holiday at the moment. But uh, I saw a title of a book, and I love books when the title draws you because it makes me feel there's something in there I need to go and look into. And the title of the book is called Sacred Smallness. It's a good book, by the way. How do we handle this? Jesus' humility was forged in hiddenness. And that is one kingdom virtue that is often ignored in the church, particularly in the 21st century, multimedia, technological revolution, celebrity Christian age, which, by the way, is crumbling around us. Thank God it is, it is over. But because we have been conditioned into this superstar kind of um, persona for ministers and servants of God, we actually wrestle with the concept that, that God might be hiding us when in fact God's hiddenness of us is God's preparation for us for the greatness of what he wants us to do. So I have a challenge. Before I move on from obscurity, I have a challenge. Can you pray this prayer? I've been trying to pray it. Lord, I don't care if I'm never known as long as I truly know you. Can you pray that today? Before you go, even before you gather to go, Lord, I don't care if I'm ever known as long as I know you. So his preparation was mostly forged in obscurity. And then I want us to look at his baptism. I want to say here clearly that baptism is not an optional extra for Christians. Amen? Amen? It's not an optional extra. It's a commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that God himself recognizes. The heavenly realms recognize baptism. And I believe, from personal experience, that the demonic also recognizes people that are baptized and who are not baptized. Now, don't fall off your seat. But I believe baptism is a part of salvation. Now, hang in there with me. In Mark chapter 16, 16, Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And when the gospel was preached, it was always believe and be baptized. Now, this is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying baptism washes away your sins. Okay? I'm not saying baptism regenerates you and gives you new birth. I'm not saying baptism saves you in that sense through justification. Paul was very clear in 1 Corinthians 1.17 that I was sent not to baptize but to preach the gospel. Justification, being born again, having your sins forgiven, is by grace through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But salvation has been misdefined in modern times because salvation is a bigger concept than just having your sins forgiven and going to heaven. Actually, salvation is best depicted, I think, in the Old Testament at least, in the Egyptian deliverance and exodus from Egyptian bondage into the promised land, and it was a journey. And salvation actually means deliverance from the world. And the first step of that is when you're born again and you're justified, born from above. But that process continues 
Sanctification is part of it and all the rest. But our, our deliverance from the world is continuous. And one vital element of that is when we're seen to be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light through baptism. See, people in the world can't see what's going on in your heart when you're born again, but they see what happens when you're baptized into the water. And I actually believe, I hope I'm not offending you, but if I am, I, I am, but conversion and baptism are inextricably linked. And I'm not against altar calls. I might even do one at the end of this message. But I think we wouldn't need them as much if we were saying to people, you need to believe and be baptized right now. Because that was the walk down the aisle. That was the put the hand in the air. That was the signing of the decision card. But I want to go a little bit further. Because if you're preparing to go to preach the gospel and you're not baptized, you need to put the brakes on for a moment and get baptized. Quite a famous preacher here in Northern Ireland said to me on one occasion about baptism, it makes you wetter but no better. But I don't believe that. I don't believe it makes you better, but I do believe, and I believe this about the bread and the wine in communion, that it's, it grieves me when people say it's only bread and wine. It's not only bread and wine, and it's not only water. In that moment when it's being used for such a holy function, there's something spiritual that goes on in the dynamic. So get baptized. And Jesus' preparation for ministry before he went was to be baptized. Think of that. Now let me teach you as I bring this to a close. Three things that are inferred through Jesus' baptism here that was preparation for his ministry to go. The first thing is holiness. I said already salvation is deliverance from the world. And I have to say right now, and I hope I'm not being overcritical or judgmental, but there has come to be a blurring of the lines in the church between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And that's because it's happening in Christians' lives individually. We're not going into that because I haven't got time, but it's very disturbing to me how the lines have blurred. And I'm not talking about legalism But the fact remains, from Genesis to Revelation, that God still desires clean instruments to do his work. 2 Chronicles 7.14 is quoted ad nausea to us. If my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from him. But one of the elements that's often overlooked is that, that phrase, turn from their wicked ways. And you can cry and shout and sing and pray about revival all you like. But until we as God's people turn from our wicked ways, we're not going to see the outpouring of blessing the way we long. And I think a counterpart to 2 Chronicles 7.14 in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Boy, that covers a lot. The filthiness of the flesh, the works of the flesh, but also the filthiness of the spirit, jealousy, competitiveness, envy, bitterness, offense. We could go on and on perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I'm not saying you need to be the finished article and 100% holy before you go into mission, but I am saying you need to have that 
moment and moments of consecration where you come to God with your sin and you do repent as a Christian and you deal with it and have short accounts with God. It was Wesley, wasn't it, who said, Give me a hundred preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen or women. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set the kingdom of heaven on earth. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, your expected worship. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you'll be able to prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. You want to serve God? You want to gather to go? Well, then you need to deal with this issue of holiness. There's sin known. None of us is perfect. I don't mean that. I'm not talking about perfectionism. I'm not talking about some old legalistic holiness concept. But I'm talking about being real with God, being upfront with God. I have besetting sins. I have things I struggle with. But I and the Lord talk about that. We're open about it. There's transparency. And that's what there needs to be in our lives if we're, if we're authentically and effectively going to serve the Lord. So how did Jesus prepare for ministry? There was the issue of his obscurity, his baptism, which spoke of holiness and dedication to God. And then there's obedience that's also inferred in this baptism. And Jesus is just doing what, what God was saying to do. And uh, obedience simply means doing what God says, even if you don't understand anything about it at all. You'll never understand everything about what God tells you, I can assure you that. But just as there's a mystery that we talked about with the incarnation of the Son of God in human flesh, there's a mystery around his baptism. We've already said Jesus had no sin. And John was preaching a message of repentance, and this was a baptism of repentance. So why did Jesus need to be baptized? If you look at the chapter and verse 14 and 15, John objects and it says John tried to prevent him saying I need to be baptized by you and are you coming to me then Jesus answered and said to him permit it to be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness then he allowed him I'm not even worthy to loose your 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 laces Jesus why would I baptize you you should be baptizing me and this is what Jesus basically said he said it's the right thing to do to fulfill all righteousness. It's the right thing to do, John. Let me do it. And what he was doing was, as a sinless Savior, he was identifying with us completely. Not just in his incarnation into human flesh, sin apart, but into our baptism. In fact, all of his life was an identification with us. Yeah. And of course, Luke expands when Jesus said in Luke 12 and verse 50, I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. He was talking about the cross, how he'd be baptized in our sin and our shame and humiliated for us as an obedient son, as the Savior of all men. And isn't it incredible that this is Jesus' first public act, and it is one of humility and it is one of obedience. You've got to obey the Lord. You just have to. 
Yeah? To obey is better than sacrifice. What is God telling you to do? You've got to obey. So there's holiness, obedience, and also we see the great crescendo is the anointing. Yeah? And the dove, and it says John saw this, the Baptist saw the dove resting on Jesus coming down. So it wasn't a literal dove, but the Holy Spirit came in the form as of a dove. But again, remember, Jesus is without sin. He's in human flesh, made in the likeness of sinful flesh, without sin. He hasn't got a sin nature, but he needs to be, I believe, baptized in water and baptized by the Holy Spirit. And he can't fulfill his mission on earth without it. You need the anointing of the Spirit. Even Isaiah 61 that I quoted, which is the mandate mission of Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He can't do these other things that he's mandated prophetically to do 700 years before his birth unless he has this baptism of power from on high. And of course, in Acts chapter 10, um, when Peter was preaching in Cornelius' house to the Gentile world, and he opened the door of the kingdom to Gentiles, he, he basically summarizes the ministry of Jesus, and uh, it's like uh, uh, also a summary of Isaiah 61. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and hearing, healing all who were pressed by the devil, for God was with him. The effectualness of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God on the earth, Jesus of Nazareth, was because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't because he was the Son of God. He was the Son of God. He was the Son of God. Not for one moment was he not the Son of God. But the effectiveness of his ministry was because he laid aside the free use of his own divine attributes and he became a submissive son. And he only did what he heard the Father say and saw the Father do. And he needed the Holy Spirit for that. And if that's what Jesus needed as the sinless Son of God, how can we do it without the Holy Spirit? Now, we would be very naive, and I'm being polite with you folk, at the very least naive to presume that Pentecostals and Charismatics automatically move in the Holy Spirit. Am I being rude or wrong? I believe it was C.T. Studd. I wouldn't be dogmatic on that. But I know it was C.T. Studd or maybe another pioneer missionary of a bygone era who said, for God's sake, don't send me any more missionaries who are not baptized in the Holy Ghost. And I appeal to Elam Pentecostals here today, don't sell your birthright around the things of the Spirit. Because it came to us at very great cost. And personally for me it did. Don't take it for granted. But listen, there's not just a baptism of the Spirit. There's a moving under the anointing of the Spirit. And that means more than speaking in tongues. Do you know we have no evidence that Jesus spoke in tongues? I'm not saying he didn't, but I don't think he did. But it says he had the Spirit without measure. Now, I know there's different time periods here and all. And don't misunderstand me. I believe in, in tongues. I speak in tongues. I believe it's a priceless gift. But moving under the anointing is much more than speaking in tongues. 
And in fact, when John in his fourth gospel relays the baptism and anointing of Jesus, it says in John 1.32, then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And the word for remain is menos in Greek, which is also translated abide. The Spirit abode on him. It, it can be translated dwell. The Spirit stayed and lived with him. So it's as if in the Spirit, no, though not literally there was a dove on his, his shoulder and head everywhere he went, but the Holy Spirit was resting on him in a, in a very wonderful way from that moment on and never left him. Isn't that incredible? And I believe that's what God wants for each one of you. What Jesus experienced was he wants it for you to abide. He wants him to abide in you and you to abide in him. That's why John 15 is all about menos, abiding, abiding, abiding. In fact, it's a, a mutual abiding in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We get to abide within them and enjoy their fellowship and enjoy their power. And the dove is so instructive to us. The similar characteristics between a dove and the Holy Spirit. R.T. Kendall wrote a book on it, of course. So I'm not going to talk too much about it. But the dove is white, speaking of purity. When you stroke a dove, and when they stroke up against one another, and they're, they're young, they, they're very affectionate. They coo softly. They don't leave one another. Like the Holy Spirit, he brings comfort, he brings encouragement, he brings exhortation, he brings the bond of love within the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit brings a gentleness. Oh, there's a ferocious power with the Holy Spirit too, like the sound of a mighty rushing wind thundering, but there's also a, a gentleness. One of the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, the gentleness of Jesus. There's no gallbladder in a dove. Do you know that? There's no bitterness and the Holy Spirit is abiding upon you and you're walking under the anointing. There's no chip on your shoulder. And there's much more than that. The Holy Spirit, like a dove, well, a dove can be easily spooked, can't it? I mean, you can disturb a dove and it might fly away once or twice and come back, but unlikely it will the third time. And the Holy Spirit's not timid in that sense, but the Holy Spirit can be vexed, we read in the New Testament. He can be grieved, he can be offended, mainly by our sin. Mainly by our sin. So are we gathered to go? Are we ready? It's not pull your socks up and you know, put your mouth guard in and get on the field to preach the gospel. That is a mistake, folks. Even Paul the Apostle for three years spent time in obscurity as God did a deep work in his heart before he was ready to go. And I believe, and I know you've been getting ministry, very prophetic ministry here around the pandemic in the last two or three years, but that was a forced solitude, if anything, and there, it was an awful period, and I would never want to go through it again. And I'm not saying God sent it. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's a gift, at least in this much, that there was an invitation into the closet that many of us took and many of us didn't. And it was preparation for what's to come. And at the beginning of our Lord's ministry, right, and at the end, we believe, of his ministry. Do you remember he cleansed the temple? Will you turn with me to this? And I'm almost finished. Matthew 21. Matthew 21. 
Verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money, of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Interesting. And he said of them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, I'm using a bit of conjecture here, but I believe it's reasonable. If there were doves being sold here, it's likely that they were sold in cages because they fly away, you know. So Jesus comes in and he upends the tables. Is it beyond conjecture that those wooden... He probably would have carved them himself as a carpenter. These wooden cages. Is it beyond conceivability that they smashed on the ground and the doves flew throughout the whole temple? And there are religious systems, and I'm not talking about you, dear folk. That's not what I mean. But in all of our fellowships, in all of our networks, in all of our denominations and our our spiritual streams and families. There are systems that effectively try to control the Holy Spirit and restrict the movement of the Holy Spirit. But when the temple is purged of control, greed, uncleanness, fear, and hidden sin, then the Holy Spirit can have his way. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and there is freedom. And it's exactly the same in our own lives. Because Paul says, are you not the temple of the Holy Spirit? And if you allow what effectively happens in baptism to happen to you in the spiritual, where you're cleansed from the inside out, and you allow the Holy Spirit to take you in that deeper work of consecration and surrender and submission and an emptying of yourself and a dying to yourself. And I'm going to talk about this more, particularly on Friday, when we talk about trial and the cross of Jesus. Then the Holy Spirit can have free sway in our lives. And if you look at the next verse, verse 14 of chapter 21, we do see what happened when, when the doves were released, I believe. It says, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I know it's only a figure and analogy, but it's true. And ultimately this will happen in our fellowships and in our churches when individually in our own hearts we come broken before the Lord, knowing that there is an open heaven. Listen, there's nothing more to be done. Jesus did it all. Praise him for that. It is finished. But we've got to enter into that, folks. We've got to enter in by faith. There's an element of perseverance as well. There's an element of the emptying and the dying and the waiting, waiting here for you. I can't remember the first song we sang, but the line keeps going in my head, but I can't remember it, about opening our hearts. Our, our hearts to you are open. Nothing here is hidden. What? Nothing here is hidden? Give me a break. <laughs> Nothing here is hidden? What is hidden? What is hidden that needs to be exposed? Boy, if there's a smashing of cages and an exposure in the church of Jesus Christ, it is today when we see the giants fall and the reputations being spoiled 
of great leaders, and I'm not in any shape or form pointing fingers or taking any satisfaction out of that whatsoever. It's awful. But God is allowing this. God is allowing this. Because those who bear the vessels of the Lord must be clean. And it doesn't come from you cleaning yourself. It comes from the blood of Jesus and getting to the cross of Jesus again and repenting and confessing. And sometimes it needs restitution. Do you know what that is? Going to your brother or your sister who you offended and saying, I'm sorry. That's the type of thing that causes revivals. But ultimately it must start with you. Let me finish by talking to you about C.T. Studd again. You know, he's a great cricketer. He was also an inheritor of probably millions in our terms today. And he gave it all up, his cricketing career and his, his wealth, to go to the mission field. And he returned from China as a, a washed-up missionary, burned out. And in fact, he wanted to go to Africa then after China. And his doctor said uh, no. And no doctor would sign him off or give him permission. They, they actually described him as a museum of diseases. And they wondered, and you might wonder, why would you waste your life as a sick man in Africa? And this is what he said, I want to see God walking about in black bodies. I want to see God walking about in black bodies. It was he who said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, what sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him? Now, I'm not there. Hands up. But he was on furlough and he went to the Keswick Convention. And the speaker at the time was F.B. Meyer, which some of you may know, a great uh, Bible writer. And Studd was impromptu asked to speak for 15 minutes and just give a little bit of report of the work that was going on in Africa. And when he spoke for those 15 minutes, there was a brokenness came up upon the whole meeting and F.B. Meyer could hardly get up to preach afterwards. And after the meeting, F.B. Meyer went to C.T. Studd And he said, what is it? What is it? And he was meaning, what is it that allows the power and the presence of God to rest on you like I just saw? And so Stud said, have you given all the keys of your life to God? Now that has become a cliche. I know... Look, I know you've heard all this before. I know that. But you need to hear it again. And you need to come back again. And you need to answer the question again. Have you given all the keys of your life to God? And it says that F.B. Meyer got alone. And he began to give the keys of his life to the Lord. Family, he gave it over. Possessions, he gave it to God. His future. He realized, like Hebrews 12 says, that there are those besetting sins and the the weights that stop us running forward to the prize. And so he started to confess those sins and give up those weights. But there was one problem. Do you know what his one problem was? His popularity. His reputation as a speaker. He couldn't give it up. And he sensed the Holy Spirit saying to him that day, it's everything or nothing. Partial obedience is disobedience. 
Now, I'm not saying you have to be perfect. That's, we're not preaching perfectionism. We're saying it all needs to be on the altar, even the things you can't fix and you don't know how to deal with. But it needs to be on the altar. If you want to go, for God's sake, don't go until you get this sorted. If you're going to go anywhere, go to the foot of the cross. Receive the holiness of the Son of God. Receive His humility. Receive the power of the Holy Spirit. But don't go. For God's sake, don't go. The last thing this world needs is another bunch of Christians telling them how to live when the power of God is not on them and the life of Christ is not exhibited in them. That's the last thing they need. That's the last thing the cause of Christ needs. Let us pray. Now in these moments, and there might be a song, there might not be, but there might be. But either way, before we sing anything and respond to the Lord, And I'm not telling you what to do, okay? So you don't have to put your hand up. You don't have to come to the front. But I want you to know there's liberty here this morning for you to come to the front. And some of you might need to do that and feel the need to do it. So don't worry. Just squeeze past somebody and come to the front. Or wherever you are in the aisle, you might feel the need. And sometimes there is a great need to respond and say, Right, Lord, I can look back into my adolescence and see important moments conferences and events at Easter time and so on when when I drew a line in the sand and you might say I've done this before well you need to do it again if God's speaking to you you need to we're told to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus and I'm not looking to be I don't care if nobody comes up the front okay and I'm not counting either but all I want you to know is there's a freedom in this moment if you have heard the voice of God. Maybe you're that person who's been overlooked and feel hidden. And it's just not your time yet. But you're, you're having to let go of that and trust God. You're having to embrace the sacredness of smallness and the holiness of hiddenness. It's beautiful when you can do that. Maybe that's your surrender this morning. Or you need to confess that sin. Maybe you need to talk to someone and confess that sin to someone else. Maybe you need to ask for help for addictions or problems that you've got. But I am absolutely sure that probably most of the people in this room, there's things you need to reconsecrate to God. And there's that general yes to God, I surrender, that you need to renew today. Will you do it? I'm going to pray for you in a moment. And then the guys are going to lead us in a a song that hopefully will help us to do this in our spirits. But in the quietness, you do what you need to do. If you need to come to the front and kneel at the altar or you need to come out into the aisle or you need to stand where you are, in the quietness of prayer, just as we're in a prayerful attitude, do it now. Just do it now. To say, Jesus, I'm following you. You are the great example of how to prepare. 
you are the way to get ready to go. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do it your way. Is there anybody? And just how you like, how you want to, you'll respond. There are people kneeling just where they're seated. People, their hands up. You don't have to do anything in particular, but just respond to the Lord. Show an indication. Draw a line in the sand. Make it your decision to say, I'm all in here, Lord. I'm all in. And maybe as you sing in a moment, you'll want to come to the front. And, but there's nothing you have to do. You just... Do whatever you feel led to do, but feel free to respond this morning. Father, we thank you that you sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And we thank you that he came. We thank you for those hidden years, and we thank you for the pain of the public years, and we thank you for the agony of the cross, and we thank you that he is alive and risen, and he's with us by his Spirit. And We have an open heaven over us, has been said at the very beginning of our gathering, because Jesus is alive and we're in Christ and he is in us. But let us live like it, Lord, and let us follow in this baptized life, baptized in water and baptized in power, but baptize us in humility as well and obedience and holiness. For Jesus' glory alone we pray. Amen.